Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, panelists. Uh, I think I just heard, I'm not sure which of you might have said, the uh, young lady in the front, uh, that we don't have a right under the Second Amendment to build our own guns. Is that your position? I think that's correct, yes. Okay, so from the founding of our country, when the right was first established, was re first recognized in the Constitution under the Second Amendment, we've been building our guns. And that's how we won the first, as you heard me in my opening, you know, my opening question, that was how we won the revolution. Um, so I think it also goes to betray your um, potential motive here, because the other gentleman just said that that would not be forbidden, that this bill's intent wasn't to do what you just said, was to prevent a right that we've had since the inception of our country. But let, me, let me get to the question, though, that the gentleman posed, and that is, without a serial number, you can still build your kit, but you've got to have a serial number. And that's what I heard you say. Yes. But that's the whole idea of a ghost gun and the whole idea of a, of a serial number making us safer is an entire myth. Isn't that true? No, I, I don't think it is a myth. Well, here's why. <clears throat> you can, it, it doesn't matter. A criminal will still you can still use a gun to do crimes with, correct? Whether it has a serial number or not. That's absolutely true. The difference, I think, is that um, this legislation will allow law enforcement to uh, address this problem at the supply level. So the entities selling online the uh, kits to create firearms, they're able to address those. So this isn't a question of uh, it's that ability to go after the hot top of the supply chain that makes this legislation effective in addressing the ghost gun problem. So it may be the case that somebody uh, cannot create in their home from scratch and then sell a firearm, but that's much more difficult to do than to purchase one of these kits online and then to do it. Um, it's, it's real. It's the process of putting together a firearm using one of these kits uh, for somebody without um, any special expertise, you can do this in, in an hour or two. Um, really not very difficult at all. And I, I like to do it with my sons. I mean, this is part of our tradition. And, and yet it's still a false narrative because you, there is no gun uh, database in this country. There's no way to trace um, anything other than the first point of sale. That's all you can do. So this whole discussion is pointless. I would agree that the, the way the tracing system is set up is such that you're able to trace the gun at the first point of sale. Um, the problem is that these ghost guns circumvent that, and this legislation is an effort to bring them back into that system. Well, I think that's severely misguided, particularly considering the testimony that the young lady mentioned that she thinks that it's not even part of our fundamental right. So, but with that, I yield. Welcome to the Good Substantial Podcast, where we talk about the right to keep and bear arms in Maryland. This episode, this week, we're going to focus on a recap of the 2020 Maryland General Assembly's legislative session. As you probably know, uh, the session ended early due to this you know, thing, this, this thing going around that you may or may not know about, uh, this COVID thing. But uh, so uh, the session started in January, wrapped up early in March in a rushed fashion. Usually in a given year, the General Assembly passes somewhere around 1,500 pieces of legislation. They didn't have enough time to do that. They only passed 600 some. That's still a lot of laws. But more specifically, since we are Maryland Shell Issue, we are talking about the gun bills. There weren't many gun bills that passed, uh, but there were a lot of gun bills that didn't pass and uh, never saw the light of day beyond a desk drawer. So we'll be discussing some of the things that happened, some of the hijinks that happened during the legislative session. Uh, we'll be discussing what passed, what didn't pass, and uh, we also have an exciting uh, index of how well behaved and how observant your legislators are of your right to keep and bear arms. So before we dive in and get started, thank every single one of you who came to testify, 
who wrote a letter to your legislator, who arranged for a meeting, who sent an email, who told your friends and family about the bills that were going to affect their ability to defend themselves because it had an effect. So many bills never saw the light of day because of that effect that you had. Don't think for a second that your your actions don't matter because they very much do. And, and we saw that effect this year. We're going to start on a uh, probably the bill that seemed like it had the greatest potential to pass at the beginning of this and didn't in fact pass, but was recently vetoed by Governor Hogan, uh, who we'd like, we'd like to thank for his veto and uh, thank everyone who requested it. Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about HB4? Yeah, so uh, HB4 and its uh, crossfod bill, Senate Bill 208, um, was the, the long gun transfer bill. Um, that you'd said fortunately uh, was vetoed by Governor Hogan. Um, so initially, uh, the bill that was introduced was considerably worse than the bill that, that was passed. Um, it was requiring a NICS check on um, any transfer, and they were defining any transfer as a loan um, that a handful of people excluded. Um, but, you know, if you wanted to loan a, a shotgun to your neighbor to go duck hunting, you were going to have to go uh, and get a next check done. So fortunately, um, through a lot of hard work, we got that provision. Um, so we're simply a background check for transfer um, of sales. The private sales would need to go through a next check, um, still with a, a couple exceptions for some immediate family members. Um, but, you know, the, it's just we know that uh, violence just isn't done in in the state with long guns. You know, there, there's more people injured with um, hands and feet and knives than, than long guns. Um, you know, and, and during testimony, they weren't able to provide a single example uh, of a crime that this bill would have stopped. That was passed wasn't as bad as what was introduced, but we're still uh, super grateful that Governor Hogan has vetoed this. Absolutely. And now there should, there should be a little bit of water poured on this. Uh, the likelihood that his veto gets overridden is quite high. Of course, you can still reach out to your legislator to remind them not to override the veto. Um, but this bill did pass by a wide margin. That is just a, uh, a reality of, of the beast. You know, it, it's really telling the sponsor of this bill. The, this, this bill was really the, the baby of uh, Vanessa Atterbury, who is the vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee. And she was none too pleased that this bill got amended to remove um, loans, to not affect temporary loans. Um, the bill only affects a permanent transfer. So if like you give a gun to somebody or if you sold it to somebody, then that would have to go through a next check. But if you merely let your buddy borrow it, that would not be criminal under this. She wants that criminally uh, prosecuted. My biggest thing with this bill in regards to the temporary loan was me leaving my firearms for safekeeping with a trusted friend is considered a loan under the bill. So if I was going through a hard time or if I needed to, you know, hey, uh, Steven, uh, I'm moving and I can't house these shotguns. Could you hold on to these for me until that I get situated? That'd be criminal. That literally happened to me. So uh, one of my good friends, a guy who I had worked with for years, he was moving from uh, one area of Maryland to another area of Maryland. And, you know, obviously you can't have a moving company, move your firearms, that's like a massive liability. Uh, a, nobody would trust that to happen because, you know, you don't have clear custody mm -hmm. of your firearms. And B, uh, I'm pretty sure basically no company will do that for you because <laughs> um, of the liability. So, you know, he came over with uh, one of his quick access safes and was like, hey, can you put my uh, long guns in your, in your safe? 
and uh you know keep my quick access safe just chilling here with like my passport my you know some other some jewelry basically showing how much he trusts me and um you know i was like yeah sure that, that does happen a lot more often than you might think uh, another interesting thing so it's perfectly legal to loan handguns so um the way the bill as uh introduced by delegate atterbury would have had um stricter uh control of uh, or stricter laws on loaning of long guns than handguns and and you know we all know that crime is driven by by handguns in this state right and that's where and and that's where they're bitter about another facet of maryland law there's a case called chow v state that basically held as much that merely letting someone borrow something or, or loaning it to somebody isn't a transfer in and of itself you know that's why lending a, a handgun to somebody or leaving a handgun over somebody's house uh, for their safekeeping isn't a crime, but this bill would have criminalized leaving a shotgun over somebody's house, but not the handgun. So therefore, so Stephen, I'll keep your handguns for safekeeping, but don't you dare give me that shotgun. Those pesky checks and balances. <laughs> right. Um, to add salt to the wound, then you have to consider the uh, penalty for violating this law was a very stiff criminal penalty that was more strict than it is for stealing a firearm. So. It would actually would have been better for one of you to steal my long guns from me so I, they're, they're kept safe than it is for me to lend them to you. Yeah, and uh, an interesting development has been um, that there's now a website that's been published by one of the, the uh, I believe it's Marylanders for uh, Gun Violence, where uh, they list some safe storage facilities of, of gun shops and whatnot that are willing to store your firearms. And in that, um, they also mentioned that it is legal to allow like a trusted friend to store your firearms. So if this bill would have passed as uh, you know they introduced it and kind of during testimony, they were claiming there's you know there's no lawful reason for you to loan a long gun to, to somebody. Um, you know, this is kind of proven that there absolutely is because um, his website kind of, you know, gives reasons of why you may need your, your firearms stored safely. And it absolutely supports, you know, what we had said during testimony, um, you know, that there are legitimate reasons for this. Oh, absolutely. And th there's the funny thing, because they, they uh, you point to it, they, they argue against the public safety uh, argument there. They, they say that, oh, this serves the public safety, the public interest to criminalize such transactions when here in another page, they're literally advocating for it. And the, the word that we keep seeing over and over again is that this is closing a loophole. It's nonsense. You've always had this right to be able to sell these guns or transfer these guns to others. Um, of course, there's federal controlling law, like you can't be doing this as part of a business and everyone understands that it's yeah, and, it's and that simple law prohibiting selling to someone that you know is is prohibited so mm -hmm. you know if you know someone's prohibited you know that's already a criminal act it's a very serious crime to provide a prohibited person a, a firearm and, and no one's advocating that it's just that there's a force that wants you to be further penalized to dissuade you from even considering doing such a transaction with someone, whether or not you trust them and know them. And that's that's what's so egregious about this whole practice. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is a great opportunity. Um, you know, we've, we've got this legislative tracker on our website um, at MarylandShellIssue.org to contact some of these kind of moderate um, senators and delegates 
um, to try and reach out to them to convince them to not uh, vote to override this veto. I'm glad you brought that up at um, if anyone punches in shallissue.org or just types in tinyurl.com slash guns 2020. You will see um, all the bills that were that were introduced this session, all the bills that passed, all the bills that didn't pass, um, as well as your legislators. And uh, we're actually rolling out what we call the rights observance score. So basically this score is an index of how naughty or nice your legislator is. Everyone starts at a score of zero. When they sponsor a good bill, they get two points. When they sponsor a bad bill, they get minus two points. Do a good vote, get one point. Do a bad vote, get minus one point. It's an empirical way of measuring everyone's friendliness or unfriendliness through the entire legislature. Uh, and go figure, our, our best friend, uh, Vanessa Atterbury, is at the very bottom with a score of minus 17. Uh, she sponsored a substantial amount of anti-self-defense bills. And of course she had a horrible voting record on this. Whereas the most friendly representative in the entire legislature was Dan Cox. He had, he had sponsored a lot of good bills and had uh, as many good votes as he, as he could have gotten. There were only uh, five bills that MSI was tracking that, that were actually uh, came out for a vote in the House and he voted against all five. They were all bad. So he has a very high score at 25. Similarly, Michael Huff has a score of 23. Um, he's he's a, uh, been a fantastic senator for uh, self-defense and Second Amendment rights in Maryland. And uh, his score uh, reflects it. The proof is in the pudding, as they would say. Closer to the zeros, which again, zero is considered neutral here. Uh, we have one representative who is completely neutral and that's Brian Crosby. Uh, of District 29B. He, he didn't sponsor any gun bills, good or bad, and he had two good votes and two bad votes. So he ends up at a net score of zero. So he, he is quite, uh, you literally couldn't be more down the, down the middle of the road than, than Brian Crosby. People in the middle here, um, you know, that kind of maybe have between five and negative five votes um, are definitely people to hit up, um, you know, to try and uh, prevent them from overriding this veto. Yeah, anyone whose score is closer to uh, the zero, closer to the middle there, those those people uh, could potentially be swayed because they're, they're close to sitting on the fence. They're like kind of looking at the fence, you know, their backs are slightly turned to the, towards the fence, but you might actually be able to uh, uh, sway their position a little bit. With that, that's our uh, rights observance score. Uh, be sure to check it out and see where your delegates and senators landed. Uh, thank them for all every time that they were good. Uh, all the attaboys are, are, are welcome. And uh, question why they voted bad. Uh, you can see exactly what they did. Uh, and this is uh, completely empirical based upon what they actually did versus how we feel they did. With that, we encourage you to check out our score. So this year we also saw House Bill 1629, which was the Office of the Attorney General Firearm Crime Industries Fatalities and Crime Firearms Study. Uh, so this was actually a bill that was pointing the uh, Attorney General to conduct a study on firearms with information for, provided from different police agencies across the state. Most of this data was already being collected by the governor's office on uh, crime control and prevention. So it seems that it's largely duplicating effort within the state. It kind of assigns this task to the Office of Attorney General, simply um, confirming the suspicion of, you know, this might end up being a little bit biased since uh, our own Attorney General, Brian Frosch, he was the leading sponsor 
of the so-called Firearm Safety Act of 2013, uh, while he was while he was serving at that time as the Senate Chairman of Senate Judicial Proceedings. And we're hoping that we're wrong about the bill and that it'll actually be fair and unbiased studies. But uh, I guess only time will tell. MSI doesn't oppose collecting of data. Um, the aim of wanting to know what criminals are doing what, how they're getting their firearms, how they're using their firearms, how long their sentences are, whether or not they were sentenced, whether or not they were prosecuted. That's all good data to have. It's just a matter of how is that data going to be weaponized? Like that's been the only concern. How is the data going to be weaponized to excuse more restrictions on everyone's rights to keep and bear arms? That was the only hesitation, but the hesitation itself of collecting data doesn't exist. We have obviously have no problem with the state finding out who's committing crimes, why they're committing crimes, et cetera. So it's just a just a point of, of new, we were really took a neutral stance on this bill, um, but of course we are cautious to see how it how it unfolds. Also, on the flip side, if it is conducted in a fair and unbiased um, fashion, and the information is interpreted based off of the information alone, having an open mind about essentially the end result of the research, I mean, the state of Maryland might actually surprise itself and find out all these gun control bills that are largely targeting, actually all of them are targeting law-abiding citizens, you know, they sort of are working against criminals who, by definition, don't care about the laws that they break. Uh, everyone had been saying, oh, well, you know, the, the federal government and the NRA has stopped, um, you know, the federal government from investigating gun crimes and, and collecting data on gun control. And it's simply not the case. And when the studies are conducted, a lot of those studies are, are somewhat favorable to the um, notion and the fact that Yes, most people are not the most people who own guns are not the ones uh, committing crime. It's criminals who are misusing firearms that are largely responsible for the overwhelming majority of crimes. And they're not in possession of their guns legally and they're not getting them legally. Um, and lot, I think just as you said, that a lot of the data is probably going to back that up. I mean, it harkens back to the 2013 uh, study by the CDC uh, under the Obama administration. They essentially found that defensive gun use was far outnumbered offensive uh, criminal gun use. I mean, the it was a massive factor. I mean, double digit at least factor um, outnumbering, you know, illegal gun use versus defensive gun use. And they actually had some amount of uh, difficulty coming down with a fully accurate number because there were a lot of cases in defensive gun uses where the mere presence of a firearm um, essentially an assailant being outgunned say they broke into a house with a baseball bat two guys and they you know hear a shotgun they go and run um a lot of times that was either not reported or you know not reported to the police because the threat's gone and you know because there wasn't a shot fired person's tired yeah yeah or the police wouldn't record like okay well you know we're gonna check off that a firearm was you know, the main reason that these guys skedaddled. So I, I, during testimony, uh, yeah, we had expressed concern, uh, you know, who was doing the bill. Um, you know, the Office of the Attorney General, Frosch, who you had already mentioned, wasn't particularly friendly to 2A rights. Um, it was brought up uh, as a suggestion, potential amendment to have, you know, it, it be done by an independent, unbiased party. And we had actually offered um, to be a part of that to, you know, to kind of help with the gathering of information. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that offer seems to have been turned down, um, you know, since it's still being done by the attorney general. So it, hopefully they um, don't disappoint 
and actually um, will acknowledge, you know, this, this, what we expect the data to prove, um, you know, like the study done by um, Johns Hopkins, you know, that said, you know, that study that says that background checks uh, beyond federal law don't have an impact. Um, and that they then actually take that data and, you know, make legislative decisions based on that instead of emotions. Those are the only two bills that had a modicum of anything to do with firearms rights um, that passed the legislature this year. A few hunting bills did pass, one in regards to Sunday hunting, one in regards to Baltimore County managing its deer, its, uh, deer permits. And uh, we do have another bill that was that focused on the military code of uh, uh, Maryland code of military justice that just had to do with a firearms related crime. But really, it was only HB4 and SB208 and HB 1629 uh, that had anything to do with rights that passed the legislature. The rest of the bills that were introduced this session didn't go anywhere. Either they uh, passed one house, made it out of committee and passed one chamber but they didn't make it into the other or didn't make it out in time. But we're gonna switch gears here and we're gonna talk about some of those bills that didn't pass. Um, there were a lot of good bills that unfortunately didn't make it past both chambers and there are a lot, of, a lot of bad bills that thankfully didn't go anywhere. So I'm gonna lead off, unfortunately, as our name implies, Maryland Shall Issue's main goal is to make Maryland a state where if a, a law-abiding individual seeks a carry permit that they are treated just like everyone else and they're able to get their carry permit. Maryland, of course, doesn't do that. Maryland requires all applicants to have what's called a good and substantial reason before they can apply for a carry permit. And you're only going to find out whether or not you actually have that after you've paid for a training class, after you've gone through the extensive application process, only for the state police to tell you, nope, not good enough, months later. Every year, there are many legislators who put forth bills that try to remove the good and substantial requirement, or they basically redefine it. And uh, this year was no different. We saw Senator Huff introduced a shall issue bill as the delegates Cox and Hartman, uh, and many others were, were sponsors and uh, co-sponsors of those bills. And unfortunately, they never made it out of committee. On the upswing, depending on what happens, uh, with the Supreme Court coming up, that the legislature might be looking into a position where it certainly behooves them to pass a shall issue bill before they're compelled to by the Supreme Court in any of the five may issue or good reason carry cases that they have before them to pick from. So um, depending on what shakes down in the next few weeks and months, uh, we, we, we could be in a much more favorable position to get shall issue in Maryland, which we firmly believe will happen sooner rather than later. You know, Maryland uh, actually currently has one of the May issue cases that is up at the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, Mount Paso versus Pelosi, correct? Correct. That's from, yes. our, that's from our friends at the Maryland State Rifle and Pistol Association. Yeah, we're anxiously awaiting news of that. Yeah, so another uh, good bill that we had that unfortunately didn't go anywhere was SB 506. So this would have been um, a handgun permit preliminary approval where you could apply to the Maryland State Police for your handgun permit and get a uh, approved or, or not approved prior to spending the money on your training class because, you know, a two-day training class, um, you know, can be quite expensive and time-consuming. And, you know, to go through all that just to uh, later be denied um, just doesn't make a lot of sense. So, uh, again, unfortunately, that uh, didn't go anywhere either. Yeah, it did. It did pass the Senate and this and get this. It passed the Senate unanimously, 46 and 0. But it did not. Unfortunately, the House refused to take it up. It never got brought up in committee. Uh, it passed the Senate this year. It's passed the Senate last year. And it's it's I think this was its fourth introduction. 
Um, and it's just one of those sad things where literally this has no effect on anybody actually getting their carry permit or not. It's just a matter of fairness. All it would have done is says, you gotta, you gotta pay for a training class after you know what you're actually gonna get the permit. And not even DC, when DC was still May issue, uh, did such a thing. Even DC let you take the training class after they've approved you for a permit, which is a high bar to, to, uh, to leap over whether or not you're gonna actually fit in under this May issue scheme. Um, so it's just, Maryland will continue, and uh, sadly, to have this unfair requirement that you have to have the training done before you even submit an application. Yeah, and it's, it's just a common sense bill. Um, yeah, and it just kind of shows some of the makeup uh, difference between the House and the Senate. Um, you know, the Senate, which has kind of been a bit more reasonable, and then the House, um, you know, which just kind of, House Judiciary has been just kind of, uh, you know, rapidly anti-2A. Yeah, that isn't to say that there aren't many sentiments that are similar against self-defense uh, between both chambers, but certainly the Senate is where a lot more overt care into how legislation was made was was put on display. And uh, there's a lot of good, honestly, good debate that happens among some of the members of the committee over on the Senate side. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Senate Bill 39, that was a very interesting bill. It was a semi-automatic rifle and pistol ban, which was going to ban more variants of the AR-15, which if we all remember from the Firearms Safety Act of 2013, they did exempt the Colt H-Bar, the heavy barrel AR-15, and its copies um, and derivatives because they had a legitimate sporting purpose. I mean, you know, they were literally made for competition shooting. Uh, which, you know, even if you go back to the 80s and 90s uh, anti-gun movements, everything always said, if it's a legitimate sporting firearm, uh, you know, it's, it's A-OK. Because, you know, they don't want to hurt the sports people. Uh, and then the ridiculous and monstrous House Bill 1261 was introduced, but withdrawn after considerable pushback. Now, that one would have compelled registration of currently possessed semi-auto rifles and pistols after three months and then ban the new acquisition of the affected firearms. So they would have criminalized the mere possession of an existing lawful firearm, including your HBAR rifles, and effectively ban future acquisition of firearms used in competitions and home defense. So, I mean, takings clause issues aside, making your previously legal property illegal overnight, I mean, it's it just seems like it's really, they're not even hiding it anymore the hostility you know it's interesting with with 1261 um the speaker speaker adrian jones of the house was listed as the main sponsor of the bill however she isn't the one who actually uh dreamt it up the sponsor uh because what happens is either members of the administration like the governor's administration or someone from the attorney general's office will request that a bill be submitted on their behalf. And the speaker is the one who actually puts forth the bill for that person. Under this bill, HB 1261, that third party was simply listed as other. So this mysterious force was was the one who, who dreamt up and, and put forth this registration scheme, you know, would have, would have criminalized possession of, of all these guns and created all sorts of confusion and yeah, lots of, lots of outrage and anger. We have some guesses on who that could be. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of uh, anti-gun groups who came, who came through and testified. So it's not beyond the realms of imagination on who could have been the one who requested that bill be put forward. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, that bill was an absolute monster, HB 1261. Uh, there was a lot of outrage over the introduction of that bill, and thankfully it never saw the light of day. It was, the, the bill was introduced and wasn't seen or heard from again after that. So uh, thanks to everyone who, who voiced their opposition on that one, because it, it, it was a whopper. Uh, it would have been, you know, a lot of people call what happened in 2013 the gunpocalypse or gunmageddon. This would have been gunmageddon 2.0, easy. Um, and thankfully it was averted for now. They might try next year to bring it back. Uh, I, ex I would expect that it's tried again. Um, so everyone needs to be uh, keeping an eye out. Of course, we'll have updates on that. So I will add to that with a shroud of mystery over who actually submitted, wrote and submitted this bill. It, it would be very disappointing and disheartening to see Maryland legislators taking a bill written potentially by a paid out of state special interest that's anti-civil rights. Because believe it or not, Second Amendment is in the Bill of Rights and is a civil right. Uh, it would be very disheartening if we were going to take a knee to out-of-state special interests and just completely throw Marylanders under the water. Uh, that, that doesn't seem very democratic. So uh, another bill that was introduced, HB 302, which has uh, created gun-free zones in private schools, fortunately never left committee. Um, we had a lot of uh, interest in this and a lot of other groups, uh, including the Gavanti Gun Club, uh, came and spoke against this and fortunately um, their just absolutely phenomenal testimony um, you know stopped this and, and proponents of this mm -hmm. bill had said you know they want private schools to have the same protections of gun-free zones that public schools have and unfortunately we we know that you know a majority of shootings anywhere happen in gun-free zones and you know so many of these private schools rely on um, parents and teachers and, and different private individuals to be the security, uh, you know, that uh, some of these groups have, have actually uh, been targeted recently. Um, you know, so this bill would have eliminated their ability to protect themselves. So that was fantastic that that bill got killed. And, and, it, and it should be said, it's we're not even just talking about guns here. We're talking about weapons. It's uh, it is a crime in Maryland to bring any sort of weapon onto a, a public school property. You know, pepper spray, mace, or, or even a knife or, or something like that. That's all criminal to bring onto school grounds. And this bill would have extended those prohibitions to private schools. It would have tied their hands. Yeah, and, and that's where, you know, people send their kids to private schools because, you know, they don't want them under the thumb of the government. You know, they, they choose to send them to a place where, you know, maybe they have a say in the rules or, um, you know, they have policies in place that they agree with, you know, so requiring these private schools to follow public school policy just doesn't make any sense, you know, from any kind of standpoint. Well, I, I would add that, that uh, hearkening back to dealings that I had with public schools, uh, we had student resource officers, which, you know, they could carry you know, pepper spray. They could carry, you know, a firearm if they want all that. Um, I think that's all basically up to county discretion, what they want the school resource officer to carry. But I mean, to basically put parents in the position of, OK, my kid can be somewhere where there is an armed and responsible individual. And, you know, you can only assume the private school is going to say, OK, yeah, you know, off duty detective, he he or she can be our uh, our guard. Uh it puts a parent in a position where they say, okay, I can either get my child the level of education, uh, not to disparage the public school system, because they did fine with me. Uh, I can get them the specialized education that I feel is best for their upbringing, 
or they could have physical security. That doesn't seem like something that uh, should even cross someone's mind. There were two huge bills that were uh, that the brakes were slammed on, thankfully. Uh, that would have affected every single firearms dealer and eventually you as a potential consumer. Uh, thankfully, these bills didn't go anywhere. They were HB 1257 and SB 816. They would have imposed expensive and burdensome requirements upon all dealers in the state, no matter how small, whether it be a mom and pop shop or whether it be a, a larger retailer. And, and actually, there's there's some funny stories about the larger retailers that I'll get to in a moment. Um, but they all the dealers would have been required to conduct annual background checks, submit their employees to fingerprinting. They would have required electronic record keeping. Uh, and they would have compelled a wide array of security requirements and mandates upon all the shops. Some of these shops already follow them. However, not every shop is the same. They all have slightly different settings, slightly different neighborhoods, slightly different, you know, everything. So what might fit in one gun shop isn't necessarily going to suit another. Uh, this bill was totally, uh, totally overlooked those types of concerns. Many of the businesses that you rely upon for your ability to protect yourself, for your ability to go purchase a firearm to defend your family with, or to go hunt or whatever have you, those businesses probably would have been shuttered. They probably would have been closed. And if they didn't close, they would be rolling their expenses onto you, the consumer. The, the price of that handgun would have gone up, the price of that shotgun, ammunition, etc. All those prices would have gone up. So this would have directly affected your ability to protect yourself. We had a lot of the dealers out, uh, a lot of these business representatives. Uh, we saw members from, I'm just gonna pick on a few names, Hafers, Engage, Winks, so many more, forgive me if I don't mention your name, but so many of the dealers came out to testify against these bills and they were fantastic. The National Shooting Sports Foundation also came out representing the dealers. Uh, Atlantic Guns was out there. It, it was it was really uh, something else. One piece of testimony that stands out to me, you had a father and daughter team. And if you go to Maryland Child Issues YouTube page, you can actually see this testimony. And this is a family-run uh, business, family-run FFL. And he gave very passionate testimony, but then his daughter comes out and we're, we're pretty sure at Marilyn Shellish that we're looking at a future Supreme Court advocate because uh, she was fantastic. She broke out the Fourth and Fifth Amendment arguments better than most of us understand and probably better than some of the legislators understand. Uh, she, she was really something else. So again, the great testimony on those bills really put the brakes on it. One thing that was pointed out about the fingerprinting requirement and the background check requirements, they would have applied for the entire store, not just the employees who handled firearms. So as you can imagine, a Bass Pro Shop, if a Bass Pro Shop wanted to hire an employee, they would have to not only fingerprint and background check the employees that were working the gun section, but also those who worked over by the fishing poles, by, uh, you know, that sold the beef jerky and candy at the cashiers, everybody would have to submit to these requirements. That's how broad and, and uh, unthoughtful the bill was at first. And there were concessions during testimony to narrow it a bit. But um, fortunately, neither of these bills came out of the desk drawer. I would like to add that uh, among the security, we'll call them, controls that they wanted in the bill, one of them was a seven-figure insurance policy that just does not exist because Maryland's legislature wanted you to have, well, wanted gun stores to have to insure all the firearms they sold, regardless of who owned them. 
So for misuse of the firearm, regardless of, you know, if there was a secondary sale. And nobody, no insurance company is going to broadly insure every single, you know, firearm that gets sold after it's out of the hands of the retailer. I mean, they may insure, you know, hey, did this firearm get stolen? Was it misused by an employee? But after it leaves their hands, it's really up onto the buyer. I, I saw that as akin to basically saying, you know, hey, you're a car dealership. Uh, that VIN number on that car you sold, it's ever, if it's ever used by a drunk driver or in a street race, we're coming for you, buddy. That's exactly I mean, what it was. It just sounded ridiculous. And beyond that, uh, they wanted audio and visual recording of the entire uh, transaction, which they were crafty. They put in a carve out in Maryland's wiretapping law because Maryland is a two party consent state for audio recording. Both parties have to consent to being recorded. So this creates a privacy issue. If you're a buyer and you say, well, you know, I largely value my privacy, I'd really rather my audio and video not be recorded. Uh, you would basically not be able to buy a firearm. Yep. In fact, you really wouldn't be able to. It's kind of telling that they actually had the forethought to say, okay, what are the possible legal defenses to this bill? Oh, wait, wiretapping. We'll just uh, we'll just put a little footnote in there and say, eh, we're doing it, but it doesn't count. When, and kind of what was crazy, the, the crimes that they brought up during when they introduced this bill of why they introduced this bill was when a, a organized group of criminals um, got together, stole multiple SUVs and rammed through a storefront, uh, I think multiple storefronts, to, to steal firearms. Um, a couple people were caught. I think a person was, was killed by the police, um, you know, in pursuit. And so this kind of organized crime... Um, you know, that that's incredibly hard to stop is why they felt the need to put this kind of just outrageous requirements on gun dealerships. We, we saw the soft lead on this. If everyone remembers um, some months back last fall, Baltimore County introduced what they called their SAFE Act, which put many of these restrictions that were talked about on this bill um, and, and narrowed it to, to Baltimore County. And it passed that council and is law now. Um, this was, yeah, I, I view that as kind of like the soft open uh, pilot program for what was being attempted in the legislature this year with this bill. Well, their, their example, uh, crime of the robbery involving the organized group with multiple SUVs, uh, it's worth pointing out that that gun store actually had most of the physical security portions, locked cabinets, bollards out front that were ram resistant so you couldn't do what those folks did. Take, for instance, safes. They're rated in man hours. That's how many hours they can resist, you know, somebody trying to break in. They're not uh, they're not fail safes that are just always going to keep somebody out. They're going to buy time until, you know, an alarm can elicit a response, uh, something to that degree. So, I mean, the the gun store in question had gone above and beyond in physical security and an organized group was still able to break in. It seems that their justification was kind of trying to pounce on this as, oh, well, this is a good reason to do this, even though all of these requirements that we're putting forth that this store did, didn't work. So next on the plate was House Bill 910 and Senate Bill 958. Now, this is on homemade firearms. This is this is something that's near and dear to my heart. Since the dawn of our nation, Americans have created their own firearms. Uh, the original gunsmiths were, you know, small groups within a community. Uh, you know, you may have some guy building his 
his uh, Kentucky rifle in his shed, something to that degree. And, you know, it's it's really a core thing in America. We have always had the right to build your own firearm. So House Bill 910 and Senate Bill 958 uh, had criminalized, would have criminalized the mere possession of any unserialized firearm, including a receiver, made after 1968 when there was a federal law passed requiring serial numbers on firearms. Now, the so-called ghost gun bill, and I don't like the term ghost gun because it's, it's really a made-up scare tactic term, the home manufactured firearm is like a much more reasonable term. This bill would have banned the mere possession of even a block of aluminum as that block of aluminum could be turned into a firearm. And as a matter of fact, the president of MSI, uh, Mark Pennock, actually held up what was marketed as a 0% lower receiver. I think you just, I, I think you just implicated Mark in a crime. We gotta be careful. <laughs> we do, we do. I, I refused to touch it when I was up there testifying with him. He, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, he held up a block of aluminum and he said, by definition of this bill, this is a ghost gun. And I mean, it's a solid block of aluminum. What are you going to do? Walk down to every uh, every metal supplier in Maryland and say, you got any of them ghost guns? Mm -hmm. mm, you got some billets of aluminum. And we actually had a lot of very good testimony that spoke to the intersection of technology and technological advancements we're seeing today, such as in additive manufacturing, like 3D printing, and with uh, Second Amendment rights. So, you know, you, if you maybe wanted to make a custom grip for a firearm, you could easily 3D print that. To give a bit of an anecdote, I had a, I purchased a new firearm, had different size grip panels you could buy. Um, you know, went through my whole Maryland 77R process, got my not disapproved. Uh, but basically expensive grip panels. And you don't want to buy four sets of grips for $50 each to figure out which ones fit your hand right. So, you know, you can 3D print off a few different grips that are different sizes. And then once you find the size you like, you go out and you buy the nice ones. There just seemed to have been, there's really an effort to demonize the idea and practice that anyone who's a normal human being, uh, you know, if you imagine what a normal human being is, would want to make their own gun. It's being portrayed as only criminals have an interest in doing so. And it's just simply not the case. Many of the people who are making their own guns are probably the listeners of this podcast who I, I can't imagine are criminals, common people. This is not a scary thing. They, they say ghost gun, you know, spooky gun, whatever you want to call it. Um, a spooky gat to me is just awesome, but <laughs> it's not an uncommon thing. And the reality is you have a right to have a gun and you do have a right to particularly a handgun. So for example, if you make your own handgun, you made your own version of a Glock, and the government says you can't have that anymore. Well, you have a right to that object. Heller explicitly protects handguns for the purpose of self-protection inside the home. Well, it's a handgun that you have a right to have. So what does the government do? They can't just outright take it. They would at least have to offer some sort of compensation for it. And that's uh, and, and no one knows exactly how many of these guns are out there because, well, it's homemade. So this still follows kind of the similar theme uh, a number of bills have uh, this year that you know, the many in the legislature think that, you know, they want to ban these these things or, or these activities or these objects um, because they don't believe that any person would own them for other than nefarious purposes. The fact that they just, you know, think this uh, about gun owners just shows the absolute disconnect between, um, you know, the average citizen and some of these people that you know are making laws for us the debates of these bills in both chambers was quite interesting uh in the house you had 
two delegates who mentioned they either do this themselves or know others that do it themselves. And likewise, in the Senate, you had at least one senator who mentioned uh, that he has relatives that does it. But then you also had a police officer who was actually an advocate of the bills who said he'd rather not see thousands, potentially tens of thousands, uh, maybe even hundreds of thousands, who knows, of Marylanders criminalized and threatened with prosecution because they have a homemade gun because he himself has other police officers that do this and they would likewise be under the threat of prosecution. He, he would rather see a registration scheme set up something like what California has, which I mean, we're not necessarily going to advocate for, but it's certainly much better than, than pointing guns to all Marylanders' heads and say, give it up or go to jail. So, so I was going to add on, it's already a crime federally for a prohibited person to create their own firearm. Mm -hmm. That is, that is uh, very clear in the sand with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Some of the delegates' fear-mongering is completely leaving out the fact that we already have a federal law saying that prohibited persons, you know, felons, uh, domestic abusers, people who, you know, have lost their right to self-defense, uh, they already cannot build their own firearm. So this is really just making it double illegal for them, while also blanketing the rest of Maryland with it being illegal. Uh, I would also add the whole... Going back to that police officer saying a lot of his friends make their own firearms, the people that I've known who have made their own firearms, they all do it for uh, customization. And essentially, it's kind of like the difference between buying store-bought, to go back to COVID-19, it's kind of like buying store-bought bread or baking your own. And we, we know everybody wants to bake their own bread right now while they're home. That's right. And uh, <laughs> we, all, we all have those friends who are online posting pictures of their homemade bread. I mean, one one person in the testimony who I remember quite well, he mentioned that he was a, you know, he was a guy who had worked in like a top level research lab. He was a defense contractor. He did all sorts of things. He really just wanted customized firearms to essentially make sure that he was, you know, accurate, which seems like a pretty big gun safety thing to be accurate at what you're shooting at, to help with accuracy, uh, ergonomics, comfort, things like that. And I mean, it seems that these bills are just completely discounting that. And they're just, like you said, they're thinking, oh, well, the only person who would want to make their own gun would be a nefarious person. It also, it also goes on, you know, creating your own, your own gun is also an expression. Not only are you exercising your Second Amendment right and creating your own firearm, you're also exercising to an extent your First Amendment right. Um, you know, you do have a right to express yourself too, and, and uh, nothing in this country has ever prohibited your own making of your own gun. One of the arguments for these bills is that criminals can gain access to the home building kits, et cetera, and circumvent other gun laws so they can make their own gun and, and you know have a gun when they shouldn't have a gun. Even if you take that as an extreme, like let's assume, which isn't the reality, but let's assume every criminal who uses a gun is using a homemade gun. That does not change that you still have a right to keep and bear arms. Most of the gun crimes that are committed in the United States are committed with handguns. And overwhelmingly, those handguns are serialized. They were produced by a licensed manufacturer. And yet you still have a right to them, despite what bad people might do with them. And, and that's really overlooked in, in a lot of this. You still, even if, even if all like, you know, all the bad crimes were committed with a homemade gun, that doesn't change it. You still have a right to, to have one. They, they seem to have a fascination with uh, serial numbers, but uh, 
I mean, if, if you think about how guns get traced, uh, the ATF has that. It's a largely manual process. They have to go through a lot of things, um, a lot of records, you know, from manufacture all the way up to purchase, etc. It doesn't really matter. Once it gets stolen once, you have no idea where the custody of that is unless you apprehend the thief when they're in possession of the, uh, of the firearm. If a firearm gets stolen, serial number or not, if it makes the hop through one set of hands or four sets of hands, there's really no way of knowing. And I mean, it seems kind of a moot point to keep arguing for, oh, serial number this, serial number that. So I know we've talked about a lot of bills, but there is one more that we want to talk about. Senate Bill 646 passed the Senate, but failed to pass the House in a rush to adjourn at early sine die because you know COVID was happening. As it passed the Senate, this bill would have imposed far more stringent requirements on gun owners for the storage of their firearms, including a requirement that a person may not store or leave a firearm in a location where the person knew or should have known that an unsupervised minor could gain access for, uh, to the firearm. That's language from the bill. Um, that word could is what is the driving point of insanity in, in this legislation. While the bill purported to have safe harbor provisions for the storage of unloaded firearms and separate provisions for long guns for which the minor had parental permission, the bill effectively would have banned the storage of any loaded firearm, no matter how it was stored. Uh, that's because it is possible for a minor to gain access to any such firearm, even if it was stored in a two-ton safe. The bill uh, was what we viewed a clear violator of Heller, which struck down as unconstitutional DC safe storage law that made it impossible for citizens to use firearms for the core purpose of law, uh, lawful self-defense. Needless to say, an unloaded firearm is useless for self-defense inside the home. It is highly likely that this bill uh, will be back next year. Uh, so uh, everyone, just with all the bills that we discussed today, they're probably going to come back again next year. It's important to read up on them. Once again, you can do that at shallissue.org under our bill tracker, or you can just go to tinyurl.com slash guns2020, and it'll take you right to our tracker. We're not taking it down. It has everyone's votes on it. It has all the bills uh, that we discussed and a whole lot more that we simply don't have the time to discuss. I know uh, Katie, uh, Stephen, and I will, will age into quite old human beings if we did that. Thank you to every single one of you who reached out, who opposed these bad bills, who supported the good ones, uh, who contacted your legislators. and. Thanks for all the legislators who put in a lot of work in the session. I thought that this year had some of the best debates on many of these bills. And uh, there was a lot of hard work put into uh, the testimonies and to writing some of the good bills and, and uh, fighting against a lot of bad bills. So this was a team. This was a team effort. Uh, everybody really stepped up this year. And um, should be said, we uh, we hope to see and expect of you, our, our, our wonderful, beautiful listeners, to step up again uh, next year and to step up all the time because the fights on your right to protect yourself and your families never ends. Once these bills are stopped one year, they bring them back the next year. So it's important that you stay involved, they stay on top of all this. If you go to shallissue.org, you can see all of the information that we have on the legislative session. We'll be tracking future legislative sessions and uh, of course we'll be following all developments as they occur over the next few months and into the fall and into next year. And there's still the possibility that they have a special session. So we'll be following any and all developments as they happen. You've been listening to the Good Substantial Podcast. We'll catch you next time.